0: The first um, few years, I've been involved in a number of conversations that went um, a bit like this. I really want to do more for church. I really want to spend more time with people in life group or, or do more with CAP or say Families or, or, or whatever it is. But I just don't have time because I have too many other things going on with work or family or, or keeping on top of the house or, or whatever it is. And As I've, as I've tried to unpick these kind of conversations, I've often found that there's a kind of assumption going on underneath um, this kind of idea. And the assumption is this. The assumption is that these kind of Christian activities are somehow more important or more significant. Better ways to be spending your time than the more kind of mundane stuff that we want to get out of the way so that we can get on with the really important stuff. Now, don't hit me wrong. I think it's really great to, um, be to pursue being involved in church or in each other's lives in life group and so on. I think they are vital parts of living out our faith. And so seeking to do them is vital if we're going to follow our call as Christians, um, that, that God puts on our lives. But, With that caveat aside, I think that the thinking behind this kind of conversation is fundamentally flawed. And it's flawed because it's created a divide. We we divide life into two categories. The the spiritual, the Christian stuff, which is important, we think. And the um, secular, the rest, the unspiritual stuff. And so, because of this, we try to cram our lives as full as we can of this so called Christian spiritual stuff. And in the end, we just end up overwhelmed. But that is not a Christian way of viewing the world or of viewing our lives. There's a famous quote from a Dutch theologian which goes like this There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence. Over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, "Mine." And when we see this, when we see that Jesus is Lord over every single aspect of our lives, every corner and nook and cranny of our lives and our days, then it transforms the way that we view everything that we do. It means that everything we do, from sharing the gospel to doing the laundry, can be done for Jesus. It gives dignity and importance to these things. And it means that we can pursue living for Jesus in everything that we do. And it also means that we don't need to be constantly trying to cram as much of this Christian stuff into our lives, into our weeks, as we possibly can, to make our lives feel like they're more significant. But we can look across our whole weeks, everything we do, and we can think about how we can do it all for the glory of God. So later on today, Ben is going to help us think about, um, just think through that a little bit more. Think very practically, very specific, about what it looks like to live for Jesus in various aspects. Of our lives, including things that we wouldn't normally label as spiritual. But this morning, I just want to lay some groundwork for that. Because if we're ever going to reorient reorient our vision to see that all of life is something that can be lived for for Jesus, if we're ever going to even want to do that, if we're going to want to live for Jesus in all areas of life, then we need to, first of all, see Jesus as worth living for. And so before we look at what it looks like to live all of life for Jesus this afternoon, we're going to spend some time just fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, half an hour is (laughs) nowhere near enough time to even scratch the surface of just how incredible Jesus is. Jesus is described as Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our advocate. He's the author and protector of our faith. The bread of life, the bridegroom, the cornerstone, the good shepherd, the great high priest. He's the servant, the judge, the king of kings, the lion and the lamb. He's the Messiah, the mighty one, the redeemer, the savior, the son of the most high. He's the door, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. I could go on and on. Jesus is bigger and more beautiful than we can even begin to comprehend. But let's try. Let's try to even catch a glimpse of why Jesus is supremely worthy and beautiful and why he's the kind of person that we'd want to live for in all of our lives. In one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Paul says this. He says, and we all who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. What's that saying? It's saying that to be more like Jesus and, and therefore to learn what it means to live for him in all of life, we need to see him more clearly. So let's just try and do a bit of that now. Let's, let's contemplate his glory. Now, this session um, is called The Beauty of Jesus. Beauty is an interesting word, isn't it? Let's um, have a think about it. Let's turn to uh, the people around us, maybe turn to the kind of table behind you or in front of you, and just have a think about this. What comes to mind when you hear the word beauty? What comes to mind when you hear the word beauty? So uh, turn to the table around you and and have a chat about that. Let's come back together. Um, So Isaiah was a prophet. He was writing uh, 700 years before Jesus. And he said this about Jesus. He said... Had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him; nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so, when we're talking about the beauty of Jesus, we're not talking about his physical appearance. I reckon a lot of the discussion um, that went on around tables will have been about kind of physical things, but that's not what we're talking about. uh, We're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. But elsewhere in the Book of Isaiah, he says this. He says something else about Jesus. He says that the Lord is our king. So um, he. He it, it said, the Lord is our king, it is he who will save us. So you, you know from that that he's talking about Jesus in this section. And then he goes on to say, you will see the king in his beauty. And so, while Jesus may not have physical beauty, we will see him in his beauty. So in what way is Jesus beautiful? how long have you got? We could talk about the beauty of his purity. We could look at the beauty of his character, his compassion, his commitment to justice, his unerring commitment to those that others reject, all aspects of his beauty. But today we're going to focus on his heart. And so let me ask you a question. It's rhetorical this time, you don't need to talk about it. When you think about Jesus' heart, what things come to mind? Oh, let me ask you another question to try to help you get more specific. When you think about Jesus' posture towards you, what's he like? Here's what I mean by that. Do you think of Jesus as primarily pointing the finger at you? Do you think his first instinct is to notice your failure and to, to hold that over you? That's the image of God that our culture often presents, isn't it? That tyrant in the sky, ready to zap us um, with a lightning bolt on a whim at the the faintest whiff of a mistake. And when we hear about the purity of Jesus, when we know that he is utterly perfect, and when we think that, we, we, we can think, therefore, that he looks down his nose at us because... Let's face it, we're far from perfect, aren't we? How could he be anything other than disappointed in us? Now, there's one place in the Gospel, and only one that I know of, where Jesus describes his own heart. He tells us what his heart is like. And what we see there, for many of us, might be surprising. Now, the fact that Jesus tells us about his own heart only once means that we should sit up and pay attention to what he says about it. Turn with me, if you've got a Bible or a fawn or whatever, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And I'm going to read from verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, from verse 28. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the one time that Jesus describes what his heart heart towards us is like, he says he is gentle and humble, or lowly. Jesus is gentle towards you. Just let that sit for a while. Are you gentle towards yourself? When you see your flaws, when you see the ways that you have messed up, when you see the ways you fail to be the, the person, the, the friend, the the parent the spouse that you ought to be then if you're anything like me then sometimes you can be really hard on yourself now of course we shouldn't accept just accept those areas but often we're self-condemning we're fatalistic we point the finger and we translate those feelings we have about ourselves onto jesus we assume that he'll be the same When we think about living for Jesus in the whole of life, it will make a huge difference to our desire to live for him if we see him as we should. If we know that his posture towards us isn't a pointed pointed finger, but open arms. It'll transform whether or not we want to live for him. Jesus does want change because it's for our good, but he is gentle. He wants to gently lead and guide and change and renew us. And very much linked to that is this. Jesus is not a brutal taskmaster. It's very easy to fall into the trap that, of thinking that Jesus just wants to pile more and more stuff on us he's impatient, that we're not doing more sooner, that we're not getting rid of sin more quickly, that we're not changing more rapidly. But he's gentle. His burdens are light, it said there. Now, I'm aware, as I say that, for, for some of us, this will go against the deeply ingrained views that we have of what Jesus is like. You may well be thinking that we're taking too much here from just one verse in the New Testament. And so, because of that, I want to take us to the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means that when we look at Jesus, we are meant to see what God is like. And so if that's the case, then the God that we see in the Old Testament should be like the Jesus that we see in the New Testament, because he's meant to be the image of that God. So the, the Old Testament God, therefore, should be gentle and humble, like the person that I'm describing here. And so let's just take a moment to see whether this is the case, whether it's consistent with the God we see in the Old Testament. Now, many of us, have the idea in our heads that the God of the Old Testament, well, he was harsh, he was quick-tempered, he was severe. But then he kind of chilled out a bit. And by the time we get to the New Testament, he's gentle. God's changed somehow. Let me just take you to a few key verses, a crucial moments in the Old Testament to see if this stacks up. Now, I could take you to the obvious example. Uh, where, um, in Exodus, where Moses asks to see God's glory, and God passes before Moses, and he says this about himself. He says, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's what God chooses to reveal about himself to Moses. Compassion, mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love. I could turn there, but But lots of us, if you've been around churches for a while, will be familiar with that. And so I want to take us to a few different places to see this. So turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Often I say turn with me to Lamentations. If you don't know where it is, look in the contents page. Um, I might have to do that. Oh no, I put a bookmark in, it's all good. Lamentations chapter 3. And while you're finding that, let me just explain something about Lamentations and something about lots of sections of the Old Testament. Because the people who wrote the Old Testament were often really concerned and clever with the way that they structured the things that they were writing. And specifically, one of the things that they were often really conscious about while they were writing was the midpoint of a particular section. And so, for example, many of the scribes, as they were writing out the book of Psalms, that kind of song book of the Old Testament, as they were writing that out, they knew exactly what letter was at the middle of the whole of those 150 Psalms, and they made that letter bigger than the rest. This was something they were really conscious about in the Old Testament as they were writing. So midpoints are significant. And here in Lamentations, we see a really structured book. So chapters 1 and 2 each have 22 verses. Chapters 4 and 5 each have 22 verses. And then chapter 3 in the middle has 66 verses, verses. So they're deliberately very structured in the way that they've laid out this book. Now, let me tell you a bit about Lamentations. Lamentations is a dark book. It comes after God has judged his people for their persistent, their unrepentant sin. He has sent them into exile. And Lamentations is a book of God's prophet, Jeremiah, lamenting, grieving over the desperate state of Jerusalem, their capital city, after God has judged it. Many would point to Lamentations as an example of how God is harsh in the Old Testament, that idea that, that was just mentioned a minute ago. And it is true that God did um, put a severe judgment on his people for what they'd done. But when we notice the structure of the book, because the writer deliberately sets it out like this, we're drawn to the very center verse of the book, deliberately, that's what the writer wanted us to do. And what is that verse? Well, have a look, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33. It says this, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Now another version of the Bible, which is a more literal translation, um, the ASV says this, it says, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does not afflict from his heart. Isn't that stunning? He does not afflict from his heart. God does judge. Of course he judges. He has to in response to evil, otherwise he wouldn't be God. But it's not from his heart not what makes his heart beat. It's not what he loves to do. By contrast, and um, look at the verse just before. I'm going to read from the ESV again. It says this, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That is his heart. He doesn't afflict from the heart, but he has an abundance of steadfast love there. You see, the God of the Old Testament had the same gentle heart, even when he was sending his people into exile. And when we realize that this is how God views our sin, and how he feels about judging our sin, doesn't it just make sense of the cross? God sees our sin. He sees all the ways we've rejected him, turned our back on him, uh, done evil at times. And he has to judge it. He has to. He couldn't be just. He couldn't be good if he didn't. If he didn't give consequences to the evil and sin and brokenness and damage that we do in this world. He has to judge it. But at the core of his heart is love. The deepest part of his heart is love. He does not afflict us from his heart. As it says elsewhere, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. And so he's faced with this question. How could he make it so that we could receive compassion and mercy and grace rather than grief and judgment and affliction? How could he do that and still be just? The answer is the cross. You see, rather than afflict us, he afflicted himself. Rather than judge us, he came as Jesus. And he died in our place, taking our judgment so that we don't have to. He doesn't afflict from the heart. His heart is gentle. He wanted to make a way to turn that affliction, that judgment, away from us so that he could be tender and gentle and compassionate with us. Because that is the true beat of his heart. And so he made a way the cross. That's why Jesus is beautiful. Okay, let's see this um, elsewhere too. Now, Lamentations describes the response of the people, um, their grief and their lament um, at being carried off into exile and at Jerusalem being destroyed. That's what's going on in Lamentations. And many think that the book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah, and we see his writing in another book of the Bible called Jeremiah. <coughs> um, in that book, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is now prophesying about a coming day when the people will be brought back from exile. So, in Lamentations, he's describing their response when they were sent in the, into exile. In Jeremiah, he's he's looking forward to the day when they'll be brought back from exile. Now, remember in Lamentations, God said he does not afflict from the heart. Well, listen to this. You don't need to turn there. Listen to what God says about the prospect of restoring his people. He says this. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. He does not afflict from his heart but he restores with all his heart and soul. That's the heart of the God of the Old Testament. The same gentle heart that Jesus shows us. That's his heart towards you. you believe that? Let me take you to one other place uh, in the Old Testament to see this. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. Again, feel free to use the contents if you need to. Hosea chapter 11. Now, as we read this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see yourself in this passage as Israel or Ephraim. Um, God uses those two names kind of interchangeably for his people. Um, uh, Ephraim, actually, interestingly, is one of the names that God uses for his people when he's speaking tenderly about them. Um, So put yourself in their shoes. See your story in their story, As you listen, God describes how he called and he nurtured his people using beautiful, tender language. And then he describes how, um, despite that, despite the way he called them, the people turn their back on him. And I'm sure we can see all see how we do this ourselves all the time. And so as you hear that, as we read through these verses, bring your own life to mind. But then As we go through, most importantly, just notice God's reaction to the people's sin. So, Hosea chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed... Hold on, I'm just making sure I've got the right section here. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they um, sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, will put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. So God sees their sin, and his response, he has compassion. Did you spot that word heart again? Let's listen again to verse 8, and I'm going to again read from um, a more literal translation here. It says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And here's the bit. My heart recoils within me. Isn't that beautiful? The tender, gentle heart of God recoils at the idea of judging his people. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. And here's why he won't destroy them. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in walk. Isn't that amazing? The people have spurned the God who, who formed them, who tenderly nurtured them. They ignored him. They stuck two fingers up at him. They turned to other gods, gods that were in the end just a block of wood that people had carved. They, they worshipped that instead of the god who rescued and formed them and brought them into the land. It was a total kick in the teeth. And here's how we would respond to that. We'd say, enough is enough. You can't reject me like that. You can't treat me like that, that way. It's not fair. I'm angry and I'm going to do something about it. God knows that's how we'd respond he is different. Verse 9, I am God and not man. I will not come in wrath. Isn't that extraordinary? Precisely because he is God and not man, he doesn't judge. The heart of God recoils from judgment in that moment. He wants to come towards his people in compassion, to give them chance to to repent. Because he is God and not us, because that's his heart. He doesn't respond to this blatant wickedness with wrath, but mercy. And that's his posture towards you when you sin. Not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's the beauty of Jesus. Of course, one day he will judge. He has to, if he is to remain just. But that's not what he wants for his people. And so he has done and is doing everything he can to give stubborn people like you and me time to turn back to him, to repent, to receive his compassion and mercy and grace. That's his heart for us. That's what he wants. He is gentle and humble. And we see this heart over and over again as we see Jesus in the Gospels. I could turn to to countless examples of Jesus showing kindness and mercy and compassion, of his gentle heart when he confronted with sinners and outcasts. The Gospels are full of them. We'd see stories of him touching the leper who was untouched by everyone else. Of him, we'd read of him giving dignity to the prostitute who was snubbed and reviled. We'd witness him restoring sight to the blind, healing those without hope, even welcoming condemned criminals. We could turn to all of those, but just as we finish, let's turn to one story. The story of Zacchaeus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I'll just read verses one to four. As Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Now, not many of us, I'd imagine, are fans of tax collectors. (laughs) But in Israel, in the first century, this was ramped up to a whole other level. You see, Israel at that time was an occupied state. The Romans had come in and and, and tax collectors were Israelites, part of God's people, who had conspired with the enemy. The shiny promise of wealth meant that they betrayed their people and they worked for the Romans. Taking money from their fellow Israelites and handing some of it over to their occupiers... And pocketing some of it for themselves. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And so people rightly saw him as a traitor. As verse 2 said, he'd done pretty well. He was a chief tax collector. He was wealthy. But Jesus saw through all of this. He saw that this man was desperate. Desperate enough to, to, to climb a tree, even to get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus's tender, gentle heart, went out to this hated man. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, um, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. In speaking to Zacchaeus, and in humbling himself to the point of going to his house, to being a a recipient of his hospitality, Jesus conveyed dignity and worth on Zacchaeus. He said, I see you. I care about you. I know what you've done, and yet I want to reach out to you. His gentle heart is on display here. He has compassion on this man. Up until this point in life, all Zacchaeus cared about was money. He lived for wealth. He thought it was the answer to all of life's problems. He thought that wealth was the key to his satisfaction, so much so that he was willing to sell his people out for it. But then he saw Jesus. And just look at how he responds. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Today we are, uh, across the course of today, we're thinking about living for Jesus in all of life. There may well be parts of your life that you are clinging to, that you know go against the call of God on your life, and yet you hold on to them. Maybe it's money for you, like Zacchaeus, or a relationship, or pride. Maybe it's some bitterness or anger that you can't let go of. When we want change in those areas, we think that the answer is to pull up our socks. With gritted teeth and determination, we, we think we can turn our back on these things that we love and that we think we need to be satisfied. That's what we think repentance is. That's what we think living all of life for Jesus means. But the truth couldn't be more different. And so here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see his gentle heart, his humility, his compassion and grace and kindness towards you. I want you to see him because as you do, you'll be like Zacchaeus. As you see Jesus, you'll be able to let go of that thing that pride or bitterness or anger or striving after meaning in the wrong place or whatever it is. You'll be able to let go of what in the end has only brought disappointment and dissatisfaction, what's only brought a constant craving for more. You'll be able to let go of that. Because instead, you'll you'll gladly run into the open arms of Jesus and you'll gladly take hold of him knowing that what he offers is far better. Gritted teeth won't be needed. It'll be a total pleasure. You'll see the one who looks at you with gentleness and compassion and who offers a joy and a satisfaction that is deeper and and more beautiful than you can ever imagine. You'll see him and you'll know there's nowhere else to go. That's what Zacchaeus did. And as we've glimpsed that beautiful, gentle heart of Jesus this morning, my prayer is that every one of us would do the same. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gentle heart. We're sorry for all the times that we assume that you're like the God of our imagination, the God who um, just looks at us uh, to condemn us, looks at us um, and is disappointed in us. Thank you that that's not you. Thank you that you do not light, delight in judgment. That is not um, the core of your heart. That you do not afflict from the heart. But thank you that you, know, you restore with all your heart and soul. And so I just pray that Every one of us here today will be able to come to you. Come to you with those areas of our lives that we hold back from you. Come to you with our sin, with our brokenness, with our fears. That we come to you knowing your heart towards us, seeing your open arms, knowing that you are so quick to love and to accept. And that you've done everything needed to make that possible when you died for us.